0: Welcome, dear listeners. This is Episode 5 of the People Hidden in History podcast series. This episode is on General Lawrence Cuter and is a perfect example of a person hidden in history. Cuter was very much a behind-the-scenes man who truly was a part of the founding of the U.S. Air Force and played a primary role in this country's preparation for air warfare in World War II and later on a key player in our preparedness for the Cold War. But also, in talking about General Cuter, we will talk about his wife, Ethel Lydon Cuter, who effectively had a career of her own in a variety of areas, paralleling her husband's career in the military. And you'll also hear about a very special meeting I had with Ethel Cuter many years ago. But before we start, if you'd like some background and inspiration for this series, please do listen to the introduction episode. And the social media is as follows. The Twitter account, which is at sign P-H-I-H-P-O-D, or the first letters of people hidden in history, plus P-O-D for podcast. In addition, I'll be posting some images on the Instagram account, which has the same account name of P-H-I-H-P-O-D. And I'm planning a website for the future that will be announced on the Twitter account and the site URL will be peoplehiddeninhistory.com. I am very fortunate to have Dr. Brian Lastly to interview and share with you folks details on Cuter's life and his involvement with key historical events. Brian is currently the Command Historian at the United States Air Force Academy. His education included many years of study in the history of air and space power, receiving his doctorate from Kansas State University in 2013. He published a biography on General Cuter called Architect of Air Power, and he has had numerous other publications, and more information can be found at the website, balloonstodrones.com. I'd like now to welcome Brian to the People Hidden in History podcast. And to start out, Brian, a lot of people have not even heard of General Lawrence Cuter. Please start giving an overview, and then we'll delve into the many fascinating aspects of his
1: life. Yeah, he's absolutely one of the unsung heroes of the United States Air Force, but also the AnaceNA organizations, the United States Army Air Forces, the United States Army Air Corps. Uh, he had a long and distinguished career uh, predating uh, the Second World War and all the way into the Cold War. Uh, and every aspect that he worked on had an influence on what the Air Force became, which is why I titled my biography Architect of Airpower, because I really felt that he helped Uh, construct the Air Force into the organization that it became. And I'm honestly not surprised that a lot of people haven't heard of him. For me, he was a guy that just kind of kept showing up. So throughout the history books on World War II and after, his was a name that would be there once or twice on a page or two, uh, and then disappear. I kind of came to the conclusion after, you know, going through enough secondary source text that there was a story that dealt with this individual. And I wanted to find out more. And so that was why I started writing a biography that would focus on it.
0: That's great. You know, just for our listeners, especially those that are younger, can you just tell us about the evolution of the Air Force, if you will? I believe it came into existence, if you will, in 1947. But tell a little bit about pre-World War II and into World War II.
1: Yeah, you could actually pick several dates that are the birth of The United States Air Force. So, September of 1947 uh, is when it becomes an independent service. Prior to that, in 1941, there was a reorganization inside the Army, and that created the United States Army Air Forces. Part of that reorganization, you also had land forces and service forces. So, you had three kind of separate elements that were going to operate during the Second World War. Uh, If you wanted to go back even further into 1926, we had the creation of the Army Air Corps, Uh, and so you could could follow that lineage uh, and that trail further backwards, you know, until the the, uh, United States Army got their first uh, airship in 1908, Uh, and then once you follow it forward, uh, the organization kind of grows and grows from there. But during the Second World War, when we talk about the Air Force, uh, what we mean is the Army section of that the United States Army Air Forces.
0: Excellent. That's a nice survey. Can you tell us a little bit about General Cuter in the time frame, let's say up to World War II, who he was, his West Point involvement? Because he never really was like an ace you know, pilot, if you will. His characteristics and good points were a little different.
1: Yeah, I think there's really two ways to look at these individuals uh, who were so instrumental during the Second World War. Of course, there are names that we are familiar with, Carl Spatch, Jimmy Doolittle, Claire Chennault all come to mind. So Larry Cuter was very much a behind-the-scenes guy. He graduates from West Point in 1927. He's initially a ground guy. He's in the field artillery, and he's not commissioned into the Flying Corps. But he's basically out on maneuver, and he's watching aerial observation, and he says, I can do that and I can probably do it better than that guy. So that leads him to go ahead and get his wings. He transitions over into the Air Corps. And from there, he really begins this track record of being everywhere that there's a major issue uh, in the United States Army Air Corps and later United States Army Air Forces. So, you know, he helps with the the airmail fiasco and that's where the United States Army Air Corps flies the the post office mail it was it was a disaster it led to a large loss of life but he writes an after action report on that he goes down to maxwell field uh, which is where the air corps tactical school is and that is where the air officers of the day are beginning to create the theories and doctrines uh, that they believe will be used in any future conflict once he's down at maxwell Field. He becomes part of this group that we now know as the Bomber Mafia. And into that group, you would add names like Hal George, Haywood Hansel, Kenneth Walker, just to name a few. But Cuter was very much part of that group of individuals who came to believe that strategic bombardment was what we were going to use in the Second World War. Uh, From there, he moves up to the War Department and he's working for General George Marshall. And that is where he is uh, in the summer of 1941, prior to the opening of hostilities for the United States.
0: So I think that's a really good point, a jumping point to talk about his contributions in World War II. In reading the biography, he was part of a group of, I think, of four men that wrote this doctrine and also plans how to effectively use air power in World War II. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, so the document is what we call AWPD-1, Air War Planning Document 1. To make a long and convoluted story short, we had all of these various war plans that we would use uh, in any given conflict, not just against Germany or Japan, but look, we even had uh, operations uh, for possible wars against France, uh, against England, we even had one for Canada, Uh, I always enjoy throwing that that one out there. Uh, But the the long and the short of it is that we didn't have any air plans. Uh, So in the summer of 1941, these four individuals, Cuter, George, Hansel, and Walker, uh, essentially get shoved into an office and told to write an air war plan to be tacked on to these existing plans. Uh, And that becomes air war planning document one. They do this in a matter of nine days. They do the math on how many pilots they're going to need, how many bombers, how many fighters, how many training organizations. I mean, it is an absolutely Herculean task uh, that they put together in in basically a week. Uh, From there, they get it briefed up. It goes through Hap Arnold. It goes through George Marshall. uh, And at the the end of the day, you have an executable plan uh, that you can begin using uh, during the coming conflict
0: yeah that was a phenomenal accomplishment in such a short time so obviously we have pearl harbor happening in december of 1941 i believe cuter was in washington up until that time at early 42 maybe we could talk about his his deployment over to europe and his activities and with some of the famous names of europe and also some of the
1: british generals i'll add in there that actually on december 7th 1941 cuter is in washington Two days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, the entire American war plans had been leaked to the Chicago Tribune. Cuter was was uh, one of the people who had a copy of this these war plans. And so two days before Pearl Harbor, the FBI showed up at Cuter's desk. Uh, this was the type of story you could imagine if it broke today. It would be a story that would have you know, a lot of legs and it would go places uh, it's actually more or less a footnote in history now because it's overshadowed by what happens on seven on December. Uh, but I will throw out there that Cuter was cleared. It was not one of his copies uh, that ended up in the Chicago Tribune. So December 7th, 1941, uh, and move forward into 1942, Cap Arnold and Marshall have this kind of core cadre of young individuals, and they know they need to go out and get seasoned in combat. Cuter is absolutely one of these individuals. So Arnold sends him overseas uh, in 1942 to command the 1st Bombardment Wing, and he is stationed in England. And so this is the early days of the stand up of the 8th Air Force. Uh, Cuter is over there. One of his subordinate squadron commanders uh, is an unknown lieutenant colonel by the name of Curtis LeMay. It's actually Cuter who highlights uh, LeMay's contributions to tactical changes up to the 8th Air Force Commander, Ira Aker. But Cuter actually is not in England all that long. He's only there for about six weeks uh, before Carl Spatz grabs him and takes him down to North Africa. Into Cuter's spot goes Haywood Hansel, another one of these individuals who needed that combat seasoning. And so Cuter goes very quickly from commanding a bombardment wing in North Africa or in England to commanding or deputy commanding tactical air forces, and by that I mean fighter aircraft in North Africa. Uh, he is working for Sir Arthur Cunningham. Uh, and if you are not familiar with that name, you may recognize it as one of the characters in the movie Patton. In the famous scene where Patton is arguing with uh, his British counterparts about air cover. Uh, And that entire incident uh, actually takes place. Cuter is sitting outside that office uh, when that happens. So he's in England. He's in North Africa. He's done bombardment missions. He's commanded tactical fighter operations or uh, coordinated tactical fighter operations. uh, And then he goes back to the War Department to kind of be one of Hap Arnold's right-hand men throughout much of the war.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about what you mentioned, his contribution when he's you know, dealing in the Mediterranean and North African theaters, if you will. What are his contributions? He really was, was a manager more so than a military tactician. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. He is not, like you said, an ace pilot. And this is something that is going to follow him throughout his career. You see it when he writes the after-action report or the airmail fiasco, you see it when he helps author the air war planning document, you see it when he is the deputy commander of the North African Tactical Air Forces, Uh, he has a real flair for staff work. Uh, And I know that might not be as interesting, or as popular as the daring do of the combat pilots, but it's enormously important. Uh, none of the, the combat pilots can do what they do without that staff organization working behind it. So Cuter already has by this point, and this is why Spatz pulls him down to North Africa. He's mm-hmm. already got that reputation uh, as a phenomenal staff officer. I I really can't highlight that enough. Uh, and then again, when he comes back from that assignment and he helps author One of the field manuals that essentially separates air power out from the ground forces. Uh, Again, it's this staff org. It's his publication record uh, that really stands him out from his peers.
0: I think a quote in your book and other uh, writings on Cuter, he would always be the level head in the
1: room. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't seem to get flustered too much. Uh, He doesn't seem to get upset by too much. I never cross in any of the research any of uh, the other folks who wrote about him ever saying that he loses his temper. Look, he, he's not the yelling commander. He's not the screaming commander. He's very much the organizational architect. Um, and this is, this is uh, replete throughout the literature. Uh, in a way, it kind of works against him because, again, not being that combat pilot out on the front lines, although he did fly uh, some bomber missions, not being that combat pilot some of the other combat pilots, I would think tend to look down on him. Uh, you see that in some of the autobiographies that were written after the war. Uh, Air Force spoken here about Ira Aker, uh, and with the possum and the Eagle by Ralph Nutter, who was a, um, a bomber bombardier during the Second World War who worked with Cuter and Hansel. So in a way, that kind of worked against him, but I, I don't think it should by, should by any stretch, diminish his impacts on on the United States Army Air Force.
0: Very definitely. Let's talk now about his time back in Washington. I believe you said that he was brought back there, was it in 1943?
1: Yeah, and he kind of becomes one of Hap Arnold's right-hand men. Uh, a colleague of mine once said that there were two people that you did not want to show up at your door during the Second World War. Uh, one was Larry Cuter, and the other was Loris Norstad. That essentially meant that Hap Arnold had taken more than was necessary interest in what you were doing. Uh, so typically, Cuter would show up with his paper, take some notes, go back to DC, and then if Norstad showed up, you knew that your job was in was in real danger. I would flash forward to Haywood uh, Hansel, who gets fired in the Pacific. Cuter went out there on a fact-finding trip, followed by Loris Norstad, who uh, led the firing of Hansel. Um, But he serves, again, as Hap Arnold's right-hand man. He goes to the Yalta Conference. Hap suffered greatly during the Second World War. Uh, He actually had numerous heart attacks. So during the Yalta Conference, um, Major General Lawrence Cuter is the senior air commander for the Americans. Uh, And by that point, we're talking about what the post-World War is going to look at. But you have to recognize uh, that Cuter as a two star is surrounded by marshals of the Soviet Union and air marshals of the Royal Air Force, uh, and he is very much holding his own there. So talking
0: about the Pacific Theater, what what was his involvement there? I think he uh, worked alongside MacArthur to some point. Let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so as the war progresses and you look at the island hopping campaigns of the Second World War, one of the things that we are trying to get with those island hopping campaigns uh, is airfields. And those airfields are going to allow us to conduct strategic bombardment operations against the Japanese homeland. We pincer Japan in between uh, aircraft flying out of China and aircraft flying out of the Marianas. These are the 20th and 21st bomber commands, and they are using this new technological wonder, the B-29. The B-29 is one of the most expensive weapon systems in history. Uh, It is run directly by Hap Arnold, uh, and Cuter is, again, one of Arnold's right-hand men in getting this force ready to conduct bombing operations. Uh, Cuter's actually given the assignment of going out and being the chief of staff for the bomber command, Uh, But what happens is once the war in Europe ends and Spatz and then LeMay move over into the Pacific, Cuter is kind of left without a chair. So he actually doesn't play any appreciable role uh, in the bombing of Japan. But what he does do is then move over into airlift. And this may seem like something of a slap in the face. Uh, Cuter and Hansel both felt that, you know, they kind of missed out on an opportunity there. Uh, But what's really interesting is by moving over into air transport, Cuter is adding another feather into his cap of what he is capable of commanding. He's done bombardment, he's done tactical air forces, and now he's doing air transport. So when you look at the creation of a post-World War II air force, Cuter's done it all even before the organization begins to exist.
0: So at a high level now, we've transitioned out of World War II. I think the important thing to mention about Cuter and the role of the Air Force is that the Cold War is really all about air power in a very simplistic term. Maybe you can talk a little bit about his his role into that, and then we could roll a little bit into NORAD.
1: Yeah, so post-World War II, uh, the Cold War rises very rapidly between 1945 and let's say 1948. Uh, The only organization on the planet capable of delivering atomic weapons is the United States Army Air Forces. Their major command of Strategic Air Command is going to uh, be the one to deliver those nuclear weapons. So the Air Force is created in 1947, partly because this concept of atomic and strategic bombing, it needs an independent organization uh, to run those operations. So when the Air Force is created in 1947, uh, Cuter is actually serving on ICAO, I-C-A-O. He is working on uh, international agreements for for flights. Uh, So it's funny that he spent so much of his life being part of this building up of the Air Force and then he's not actually there when when the Air Force itself is created. Uh, Something like an absentee father, if you will. Although, so he controls uh, the military air transport uh, system, what we call MATS. So this is the Navy and the Air Force's uh, air transport organization. So again, bombers, fighters, air transport, Cuter has done it all
0: that's, that's a, a good summary so moving forward a little bit maybe you could talk a little about about the 50s I'm not sure in the timeline but when when are the plans drafted for NOrad and then the construction in Colorado
1: so after he commands mats after he does ICAO he has a series of assignments uh, he commands air University which is the intellectual and leadership center uh, down at Maxwell Air Force Base more or less the follow on to the old Air Corps Tactical School. Uh, Cuter really enjoyed his time down there, really enjoyed being part of that organization. He commanded the Far East Air Forces, uh, what we call FIF. He commanded the Pacific Air Forces, PACAF. uh, And then following that, he goes on to be the second commander of the North American Air Defense Command, or NORAD. So, Once CUTER takes over at NORAD, and let me explain a little bit about what NORAD is. NORAD is the North American Air Defense Command. Uh, At the time, its principal purpose was to serve as a tripwire or an early warning for any possible Soviet incursions into the airspace of the United States and Canada. There were a series of radar lines: the distant early warning line, the Mid-Canada line, the Pine Tree Line. All of these served to detect any possible incoming Soviet threats. That was all fed back into a command center at Int Air Force Base here in Colorado Springs. uh, And Cuter became the second commander of the North American Air Defense Command. He actually oversaw a lot of the construction on Cheyenne Mountain, uh, if you are familiar with the movie War Games. You would be familiar with that command structure inside the mountain. He was there for the initial blast, for the excavation. Uh, And then after the excavation, he went in and said, nope, go back in. We need a bigger hole. But he oversaw the initial construction of the Cheyenne Mountain Operations Center.
0: Now, uh, again, in your biography on Cuter, he actually has a meeting with JFK towards the end of his career. Can we talk a little bit about what his advice or what that conversation was about and actually the time frame?
1: Yeah, I found this really fascinating. So technology is advancing rapidly. In the 1950s and early 1960s, the generational change in aircraft is, you know, not to, not to be glib, but pretty ridiculous how fast things are advancing. So we go from propeller-driven aircraft to jet engine aircraft, uh, and these are advancing quick, fast, and in a hurry. Uh, these aircraft can be used either to deliver nuclear weapons, or they can be deli- or they can be used as interceptors to stop incoming Soviet bombers. So what Cuter is actually advocating for when he goes to meet with President Kennedy is the next generation interceptor this is an interceptor that never gets built. Uh, But Cuter felt that it was important for him to go to the president and give his best military advice. And I found this conversation fascinating because it represents the very best in civil military relations. Cuter has gone through his chain of command and not really got where he wanted to. uh, As the commander of NORAD, as was his right, he asked to meet with Kennedy. They met in the Oval Office. Uh, Cuter notes that JFK sits in his favorite rocking chair, which was where Kennedy took most of his meetings from. Cuter presented all of his arguments. We need a new manned interceptor, two-person, two engines, uh, two of everything on this interceptor. Kennedy heard him. Uh, Kennedy saw him through. Uh, The interceptor did not get built, but Cuter noted afterwards that it was my job to express my best military advice and then essentially to salute smartly and carry out the plans of the day.
0: So, Cuter, I believe, did retire in 1962, but I want to highlight that he kept really good uh, written history of everything he did. In fact, you know, later in his life, his wife, Ethel Cuter, was very key in recording their history and his history. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, this is really fascinating. And I would greatly enjoy spending a few minutes talking about this. Cuter and Ethel were lifelong. Uh, archivists in and of their own right, they kept everything from the time they were married until well after his retirement. Every invitation, every diary, uh, every important scrap of paper, they kept every bit of that. And they're actually bound in about 40 very large volumes and in the archives here at the United States Air Force Academy. And there was no way that I could have written this biography without the diligent work of Ethel and everything she kept. Very
0: interesting. And I think that he was writing maybe a more extensive autobiography that didn't get finished at the time of his death, but still, like you're saying, a tremendous amount was recorded.
1: Yeah, he dies in November of 1979. He was working on a book titled Global Air Power. He only made it up through 1943, so he did not even finish his World War II years. Ethel tried to pick up the story. She wrote her own unpublished autobiography uh, titled Along with Larry, uh, and that is also uh, in the Air Force History Archives. Uh, When taken together, I don't know of any other Spouse combination where, where they both wrote uh, so extensively uh, during, during their time together. I would also add that every one of their, you know, there's no other way to say it, every one of their love letters when Larry was at West Point are also in the archives here.
0: It's it's mentioned at the beginning of his biography by you, but there's a very cute story of a relationship between them. It's almost like a Hallmark movie. You know, when he goes to West Point, they write each other almost every day, correct?
1: Yeah, they do. In fact, her diary, and she kept a diary from the time she was 13, and her diary actually mentions them meeting their junior year of high school and on into their senior year of high school. Uh, what's really interesting about this diary is She's kind of palling around with her girlfriends and dating on and off. Uh, and she meets Larry and she describes him as a real fine fellow. And gee, he's nice. Uh, but she continues to, to go on dates with, with other gentlemen callers, if you will. But the diary itself, it's really interesting that eventually Larry kind of overtakes everyone else. Uh, and there comes a point in their senior year where there's not a day that goes by where she doesn't write about. Uh, Larry, in the in the diary. You know, it's, it's funny as I was reading through it, I had to keep in mind that what I'm looking at is the diary of a, of a 16 and 17-year-old uh, infatuated girl. I tended to view, you know, that they had always been together, that I tended to view them as adults. So to, to try to get back into that mindset of even what I might have been like at 17 years of age was actually a lot of fun.
0: Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, before you and I started talking, Ethel Cuter was amazing in her own right with her various accomplishments. And I'll talk more about that at the end of the podcast. But they were very devoted to each other. And the wife of someone who was that high in the military, it's not an easy life. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so she was as busy as Larry was uh, during the Second World War. She worked uh, very closely with B. Arnold, uh, Hap Arnold's wife. They worked very closely together on various things. It was not. She was not. You know, keeping the home fires burning, if you will. Uh, now, she she also had a, a very uh, a very good life of her own. Uh, an accomplished actress, uh, performed in various stage plays, depending on where they were. You know, raising raising their daughter Roxanne. Uh, one of the fascinating things is the photo albums. Uh, that detail all of the various places that they were stationed. So, yes, yeah, she was she was very much accomplished in her own right. Very busy during the Second World War, and I will say that this comes across in the autobiography that Ethel wrote along with Larry, uh, and it comes across in some of the diary entries and letters. Is that this was this was a tough life, not only during World War II, but afterwards. You know, she kind of thought that you know after the war was over you know Larry might come home and they could settle down but with Tim remaining in the military you know it was hard for under, her to understand why he was gone all the time so like any married couple they definitely had their struggles and it it very much came through in the archives they kept
0: that's a good summary. And again, I'll give more details in this later, but she was president of an organization called the National Society of Arts and Letters, 1948 to 1950. And that's how I sort of come into this because she worked with my grandmother and that's how I got to know Ethel. But she was the president of this national organization that was very involved in helping out young artists in a variety of fields, you know, giving them money to further their careers, et cetera. So in addition to what you mentioned, she did have a very full life. And I think, too, um, you know, the wife of a senior military official, you're under a lot of scrutiny. I think you have to comport yourself a certain way. So there's almost like a double life she's leading.
1: No, she was uh, she was incredibly accomplished in her own right. Uh, she was an accomplished theater actress. Uh, she was, you know, uh, a college graduate. Uh, she taught at uh, Huntington College down uh, when they were at Maxwell Field. Uh, she raised Roxanne. You know, I, I could go on and on about her accomplishments. Uh, a book, she's definitely worthy of a book herself. It would be great to, to highlight all of the work that she had done uh, during and after the Second World War.
0: No, that's a really good point. And I'm going to try to highlight as much as I can um, within the scope of this podcast. Now, getting back to Larry and his writings, he did publish some books. Maybe we could talk about those titles and their topics.
1: And so, Cuter published two books during his life uh, in numerous articles. He was quite the prolific writer. And this goes all the way back to when he was an instructor at the Air Corps Tactical School. He published in the Coast Artillery Journal. Uh, In other military journals, he writes during the war. After the war is over, he publishes his first book called "An Airman at Yalta: An Inside Account by the Man Who Represented the Army Air Forces at the Crucial Yalta Conferences." Uh, Kind of a long title there, but it's basically about his experiences representing Hap Arnold at the Yalta conference. And later in life, he actually also published in things like Golf Magazine. He was an avid golfer. And so those I found really interesting as well.
0: Now, just one historical footnote, Brian, maybe you can just list who was at the Yalta Conference for anybody listening to this, not knowing who the luminaries were there.
1: Okay, yeah. So he writes this book, Airmen at Yalta, about his experience there. Uh, And the Yalta Conference takes place in February of 1945. All of the senior allied leaders are there. Uh, Roosevelt's there. Churchill's there. Uh, and they are essentially trying to establish uh, marshals there. They are essentially trying to establish what the post-World War is going to look like. Uh, and so Cuter is there at Arnold's behest uh, representing the United States Army Air Forces.
0: That's that's so impressive that he was part of that. And getting back to his publications, didn't he write something about the uh, the 747 sort of getting into, you know, civil aviation?
1: Yeah, so in the early 1970s, he writes this book called The Great Gamble, the Boeing 747, uh, about the creation of, uh, you know, this this very impressive uh, jumbo jet. And at the time uh, that he writes it, he had been uh, a senior vice president for Pan Am Airways. It was, you know, kind of his, his retirement gig. Uh, but that book is all about uh, the creation of the 747. So here is this individual who starts flying aircraft and, you know, canvas Jennings, uh And he he kind of sums up an entire career with the creation of the Boeing 747. But you can look at how much aviation changed uh, during the time that he was involved.
0: No, I think that's amazing. It's almost like an Alpha Omega thing, you know, going from the 1920s now into the early 70s. I think that's just a very, very great way to talk about the whole span of his career.
1: And I'll add that there's a photograph in the Cuter scrapbooks that shows him and his grandson uh, sitting in front of the television in July of 1969 when Armstrong and Aldrin land on the moon. And so these are individuals, this generation who served before, during, and after World War II, uh, who helped create the United States Air Force. For them to go from the canvas biplanes of the late teens and, and 1920s, uh, and on into an era where we're putting footprints on the moon uh, is absolutely fascinating. They they really did see the development of air power uh, and space power in all its many facets.
0: That is just amazing. So I think one of the things that I hope has been made clear to my listeners is Cuter is definitely somebody who to some degree was hidden in history, and I really wanted to bring out the impressive career, his accomplishments, his contributions over, what, close to a 50-year period. And I think, Brian, you've given us a great summary. Just provide any closing comments or thoughts you might have to share.
1: For me, again, this all started when I would come across Cuter's name on a page or two in a history book. There are streets named after him, uh, he has been given, you know, several awards. He's in the Airlift Tanker Society. Uh, but there's there's really not anything, to my knowledge, that demonstrates just how important he was. And so I would definitely put him in this pantheon of air power pioneers who have really not gotten the credit that is due. You could put Haywood Hansel in that group. But it was these one and two-star two general officers during the Second World War uh, who went on to be the four stars after the war who really helped create the United States Air Force as we understand it as, and as it operates today. Uh, and so, you know, in my opinion, General Lawrence Sherman Cuter is definitely an air power luminary.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Brian, for sharing this incredible life with our listeners. Thank you.
1: Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you so much.
0: As promised at the beginning of this podcast, we'll now talk about Ethel Cuter. Again, my connection to Ethel Cuter was through my grandmother's involvement in the National Society of Arts and Letters organization, or NSAL, that for many years has sponsored young artists. Ethel was very active as president 1948 to 1950, and she actually helped incorporate this nonprofit organization. My grandmother worked closely with her, following as president in 1950. I had the privilege of meeting Ethel in 1975 while she was at an NSAL convention in Indianapolis, Indiana. I have to tell you that I really enjoy telling this story since it gives a more personal insight into who Ethel was. During this convention, Ethel and my grandmother had tickets to see a ballet in downtown Indianapolis. My grandmother had a last-minute conflict, so I got her ticket and went with Ethel. I don't even recall what the ballet was, but some sort of more traditional production like Swan Lake. Before it started, we sat there reading the program notes. In that booklet was a photo of this beautiful, full-length black velvet cloak from a local clothing store. I loved the design, and I told Ethel I would be making something like it someday, since at that time, I sewed a lot of my own clothes. Ethel just nodded and said, how nice. After that night, I didn't see Ethel again, and she went back to her home in Florida. Two weeks later, I got a fairly sizable package in the mail, I opened it up and in it was a full-length black velvet cloak from Ethel, almost identical to the one in the program booklet. A note was enclosed saying that she wanted me to have it, knowing I would appreciate it. She also added she wore it to an event at the White House with her husband Larry when Eisenhower was president in the 1950s. You can see a picture of this cloak at the People Hidden in History Instagram account. I cherished it so much, and I did wear it through the years. The first time I wore it was actually to a military ball just a year later at the University of New Hampshire. It was celebrating our country's bicentennial in 1976. I was with all my friends who at the time were in the local Air Force ROTC. Ironically, I didn't know who General Cuter was at the time and never mentioned that this cloak belonged to the wife of an Air Force general, which would have been an interesting topic that night. But I want to add one more part to that story. There were around three to four couples at my table that night. One of these couples were Marcia Cheeseman and Michael Therrien. Marsha and Mike eventually married and were married for 42 years, but this is a memorial to Marsha, who passed away in 2020 from breast cancer. Marsha joined the Air Force in 1976 and spent 23 years in the Air Force as a dietitian, retiring in the rank as colonel, and the Air Force meant a great deal to her. This podcast episode is dedicated to her. Referencing Ethel Cuter again, both Brian and I are doing further research on Ethel and may record a follow-on podcast on her many accomplishments. I do hope you've enjoyed hearing the highlights of General Cuter's life and accomplishments. I encourage you to purchase Brian's book, Architect of Air Power, which is available through Amazon, both in print and download. Thanks so much for listening to the People Hidden in History series. I hope you have enjoyed these interesting characters and learned facts that aren't commonly known. And please do subscribe to this series through the various podcast venues, including Apple, Google, and Spotify.